Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, I hope you're staying healthy, and I hope that you're staying home. As always, I have three recommendations to help fill up those minutes and hours of self-isolation. Let's start with a documentary of sorts. These days, the only movies that get screened at midnight when we're allowed to go to the theater are big Hollywood blockbusters hoping to squeeze a few extra bucks out of fanboys and girls with added showings in the middle of the night. There was a time, however, when midnight movies were midnight movies with capital M's. Years ago, the term referred to mind-bending fare like El Topo and Eraserhead, counterculture movies that brought together like-minded, i.e. stoned people for a singular movie experience. A Liar's Autobiography, the untrue story of Monty Python's Graham Chapman, is a midnight movie, a film that would benefit from the altered states that characterized the classic midnight viewing experience. Graham Chapman was many things, a gay Cambridge graduate, a doctor, a writer, and an actor, but it is as a founding member of Monty Python that he is best remembered. A Liar's Autobiography, directed by Python Terry Jones's son, Bill, and based on Chapman's book of the same name, is an animated, impressionistic, surreal portrait of the comedian that doesn't focus on the funny. Chapman was a complicated man, an alcoholic who drank four pints of gin a day to dull the pain of his insecurities. He rebelled against the, quote, airlock of fame while hanging out in Los Angeles clubs with Keith Moon and Marty Feldman. The film begins with a brain freeze on stage, then cuts to his birth in Second World War England. At three years of age, he witnessed a wartime incident when his street was littered with body parts. Oh, come on, Mum, this must be one of my formative experiences, he says, although we never really find out whether or not it was. Instead, we are treated to a series of impressionistic, biographical tidbits that only loosely hang together. The formation of Monty Python is set in a monkey zoo. Fame is likened to being in outer space, and his journey to discover his sexuality is shown as a roller coaster. Those visuals will keep your eyeballs dancing. Aping the wild spirit of Monty Python, the style of animation switches every few minutes, which keeps things lively. Focusing on Chapman's often troubled personal life rather than on his stage and screen work with Python means that A Liar's Autobiography isn't simply a greatest hits package of his best-known work, which is interesting. We are given some insight, the narration and many of the voices are supplied by Chapman taken from recordings made before his 1989 death about coming out, his alcoholism, sexual appetite, and problems with fame, but don't expect a funny movie about Chapman. Because it's not. It works when the gentle humor mixes with insight and a sequence about nibbonism, the Hollywood disease characterized by name dropping, is letter perfect. I asked one of the producers, Monty Python's Terry Jones, about the legacy of Monty Python. His answer is not what you might expect. I don't see it as a legacy, really. I, I mean, I, I just can't see it. Um, I think people talk about it, but, um, uh, you know, I have no idea what impact we had on, uh, on comedy. Um, was it because you were in a bubble when it was happening? You were just working so much that... Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, I think so. And, uh, and also, it was like we were... We were wondering whether anybody was going to laugh at it. I mean, uh, the very first 
show we did, um, John came behind Mike Palin and said, oh, do you realise, Mikey, that we may be doing the only television show that nobody ever laughs at? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I think that's what we, we, we had a... a an audience of old age pensioners who thought they were going to come and see a circus and, uh, <laughs> and I think Graham and I were doing the uh, the first sketch we recorded was the sh- flying sheep sketch uh, um, and I think there wasn't a lot of reaction to it on <laughs> bewildered pensioners um, uh, <laughs> I think that's what prompted Graham John's remark It's nice to hear that voice again And now let's have a look at something completely different. After a period of wild tabloid overexposure that ruined his credibility with moviegoers and very nearly turned him into an industry in-joke, Ben Affleck took some time for self-reflection, stopped saying yes to every script that came his way, and he earned a second act. The town sees him on both sides of the camera, directing, co-writing, and starring in a crime drama that returns him to the scene of his first success, the Boston of Goodwill Hunting. A title card in the movie's opening credits claims that Boston's Charlestown neighborhood has produced more bank robbers than any other place on earth. Among them are Doug and Jim, played by Affleck and Jeremy Renner, two local boys and lifelong friends who specialize in taking down armored cars. When they discovered that one of their victims, a bank manager played by Rebecca Hall, lives just four blocks from them and could possibly finger them for a bank robbery, Doug is sent to scope her out and find out if she knows anything. Of course, they meet, fall in love, and through the bank manager, Doug sees another way of life other than the violent path he now so effortlessly walks. Jem, however, isn't ready to let Doug go. Affleck's directorial debut, Gone Baby Gone, set the bar high for his work behind the camera. It is an uncluttered, unsentimental film that seemed to announce the arrival of an interesting new director, someone who wasn't afraid to make difficult, less mainstream choices that honored the story rather than pandered to the audience. The spirit is alive and well in the town, at least for three quarters of the film. Affleck balances the crime and romance elements of the story rather deftly until we near the end when his need, and here's a little mini spoiler for a crowd-pleasing finale, trumps his grittier instincts. The Town is a nicely acted ensemble piece with intense work from Jeremy Renner, a sweet performance from Rebecca Hall as the vulnerable bank manager, and a sure hand from Affleck. I spoke with John Hamm, who plays FBI Special Agent Adam Frawley in the town. I asked him what he learned by doing research by talking to FBI agents and police. Here's what he had to say. Um, it's, it's amazing how diligent they are as, at, at their job. They're, they're tremendously accomplished, and that's, that's what they do. They yeah. wake up, they try to solve crimes, and they go to bed. Right. That's all they do. At some point, they have lunch. <laughs> Um, but uh, but they are they are uh, that's their focus yeah. and and uh, like I said it's it's it, it should we should thank them daily because they are it's a, it's a cliche at this point but they are the thin blue line that separates the good guys from the bad guys mm-hmm. and um, they um, they're very good at their job right. the the amount of intelligence the amount of uh, focus 
is uh, staggering, and it's really cool to see. And finally, the weirdest movie of the week. A movie about a group of college kids who go to a remote cabin complete with a dangerous hillbilly type, mysterious incantation, and lines like, no matter what, we have to stay together, sounds really familiar. Like a thousand teen chillers we've seen before, but add in a secret government agency, ancient evil life forms, and other surprises, you'll get no spoilers here, and you have the best mashup of horror and humor since Scream. All I will tell you about the plot is this. Five college friends go to a cabin in the woods. Then all hell breaks loose. All the conventions of the teen horror genre are here, but turned upside down. The pleasure of Cabin in the Woods is in the not knowing, so excuse the brief synopsis. Go in fresh and be surprised. I can tell you that there has never been a slasher flick quite like Cabin. The subversive mix of horror movie lore postmodern self-awareness and gruesome gags isn't exactly new, but rarely has it been this smartly presented. Like romantic comedy, horror is a genre that frequently takes the easy way out. By the time we got to Saw 3479, A Stab in the Dark in 3D, the movies were more about how many gallons of stereoscopic blood could be squirted towards the audience rather than creating a new intriguing story. Conversely, Cabin in the Woods screenwriters Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard, who also directed, have crafted a film that is exhilarating in the way it adopts and then challenges the conventions of the form. They even have fun with J-horror with hilarious results. Expect Whedon's trademark crackling dialogue. Expect gallons of blood. Expect to be challenged. Expect the unexpected. I liked how all the top-line cast are all unknowns, at least they were when the film was released, because it gives the movie an element of danger. It means that any of them could go at any time. I asked the writer and director, Drew Goddard, about that. Here's what he had to say. That's right. That was very important to us. We wanted to say, like, you know, that, that no one was safe yeah. in this movie. There, you, you don't know where this movie is going. That yeah. was something that we wanted to sort of keep coming back to. It's like, if sometimes with movies... Just based on the cast billing alone, right. you can guess the order. Yeah, you yeah. can guess who's going to live and who's yeah. not. And we, we didn't want that. We wanted it to feel like you don't know who's going to get it next. Well, that's why, you know, um, Tom Cruise movies and Will Smith movies, and I know that there are Harrison Ford movies probably, and more, uh, don't work for me particularly well in terms of having an element of danger to them. Right. Because you know that they are always the heroic character and that by the end of the movie they're still going to be left standing. Right. And so it takes you, uh, it, it takes some of the fun, some of the guesswork out of it. That's right. And I, you know, I think certainly, sometimes that's comforting. Yeah. You know, like sometimes yeah, that's what you're looking for. You yeah. want, oh, good, this guy's going to save the day. That's that's going to make me feel good. Yeah. But certainly in this movie we wanted to, to keep you on the edge of your seat. Well, the first big kill in this movie <laughs> is... Uh, you don't really see all that much, but it's so grim yeah. <laughs> to me. It's so grim just in the method that the person is going to go in. And again, you know, that to me uh, harkened back to the old horror movies that I was talking about because you don't see that much. You see, uh, like Hitchcock said, you show them the bomb under the table and then you just wait and you let people get uncomfortable that way. Well, you, you show them the manner in which that person's going to die. You don't really show the way they're going to go, right. but it's horrible when you but think about it. But it's a horrible it. way. Yeah, no, that, it is finding that balance. Yeah. And it's certainly in our movie, because we uh, 
shift tones so much or, yeah. or you know we wanted to say like no this is serious yeah. and we find the best way to sort of do that is just just put put the kernels in the audience's mind and then let them let them you know put it all together well that's it three movies to have a look at to help fill the minutes and the hours of self-isolation until we talk again i'm richard Krauss. stay happy stay healthy and stay home